Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 13 and 14, from The Return of Tarzan, by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And now, chapter 13, The Wreck of the Lady Alice. The next morning at breakfast, Tarzan's place was vacant. Miss Strong was mildly curious, for Mr. Caldwell had always made it a point to wait that he might breakfast with her and her mother. As she was sitting on the deck later, Monsieur Thuran paused to exchange a half-dozen pleasant words with her. He seemed in most excellent spirits. His manner was the extreme of affability. As he passed on, Miss Strong thought what a very delightful man was Monsieur Thuran. The day dragged heavily. She missed the quiet companionship of Mr. Caldwell. There had been something about him that had made the girl like him from the first. He had talked so entertainingly of the places he had seen, the peoples and their customs, the wild beasts, and he had always had a droll way of drawing striking comparisons between savage animals and civilized men that showed a considerable knowledge of the former, and a keen, though somewhat cynical, estimate of the latter. When Monsieur Thuran stopped again to chat with her in the afternoon, she welcomed the break in the day's monotony but she had begun to become seriously concerned in Mr. Caldwell's continued absence. Somehow she constantly associated it with the start she had had the night before, when the dark object fell past her into the sea. Presently she broached the subject to Monsieur Thuran. Had he seen Mr. Caldwell today? He had not. Why? He was not at breakfast as usual, nor have I seen him once since yesterday, explained the girl. Monsieur Thuran was extremely solicitous. "'I did not have the pleasure of intimate acquaintance with Mr. Caldwell,' he said. "'He seemed the most estimable gentleman, however. "'Can it be that he is indisposed and has remained in his stateroom? "'It would not be strange.' "'No,' replied the girl. "'It would not be strange, of course. "'But for some inexplicable reason I have one of those foolish feminine presentiments "'that all is not right with Mr. Caldwell. "'It is the strangest feeling. "'It is as though I knew that he was not on board the ship.' Monsieur Thuran laughed pleasantly. "'Mercy, my dear Miss Strong,' he said. "'Where in the world could he be, then? "'We have not been within sight of land for days.' "'Of course, it is ridiculous of me,' she admitted. "'And then? "'But I am not going to worry about it any longer. "'I'm going to find out where Mr. Caldwell is.' And she motioned to a passing steward. "'That may be more difficult than you imagine, my dear girl,' thought Monsieur Thuran. But aloud he said, "'By all means.' "'Find Mr. Caldwell, please,' she said to the steward, "'and tell him that his friends are much worried by his continued absence.' "'You are very fond of Mr. Caldwell,' suggested Monsieur Thuran. "'I think he is splendid,' replied the girl, "'and Mama is perfectly infatuated with him. "'He is the sort of man with whom one has a feeling of perfect security. "'No one could help but have confidence in Mr. Caldwell.' A moment later the steward returned to say that Mr. Caldwell was not in his stateroom. "'I cannot find him, Miss Strong, and—' He hesitated. "'I have learned that his berth was not occupied last night. I think that I had better report the matter to the captain.' "'Most assuredly,' exclaimed Miss Strong. "'I shall go with you to the captain myself. It is terrible. I know that something awful has happened. My presentiments were not false, after all.' It was a very frightened young woman and an excited steward who presented themselves before the captain a few moments later. 
He listened to their stories in silence, a look of concern marking his expression as the steward assured him that he had sought for the missing passenger in every part of the ship that a passenger might be expected to frequent. "'Are you sure, Miss Strong, that you saw a body fall overboard last night?' he asked. "'There is not the slightest doubt about that,' she answered. "'I cannot say that it was a human body. There was no outcry. But it might have been only what I thought it was, a bundle of refuse. But if Mr. Caldwell is not found on board, I shall always be positive that it was he whom I saw fall past my port. The captain ordered an immediate and thorough search of the entire ship from stem to stern. Miss Strong remained in his cabin, waiting the outcome of the quest. The captain asked her many questions, but she could tell him nothing about the missing man other than what she herself had seen during their brief acquaintance on shipboard. For the first time she suddenly realized how very little indeed Mr. Caldwell had told her about himself or his past life. That he had been born in Africa and educated in Paris was about all she knew, and this meager information had been the result of her surprise that an Englishman should speak English with such a marked French accent. "'Did he ever speak of any enemies?' asked the captain. "'Never. Was he acquainted with any of the other passengers? Only as he had been with me.' through the circumstance of casual meeting his fellow shipmates. Uh, "'Was he, in your opinion, Miss Strong, a man who drank to excess?' "'I do not know that he drank at all. He certainly had not been drinking up to half an hour before I saw that body fall overboard,' she answered, "'for I was with him on deck up to that time.' "'It is very strange,' said the captain. "'He did not look to me like a man who was subject to fainting spells or anything of that sort.' and even had he been, it is scarcely credible that he should have fallen completely over the rail, had he been taken with an attack while leaning upon it. He would have rather fallen inside, upon the deck. If he is not on board, Miss Strong, he was thrown overboard, and the fact that you heard no outcry would lead to the assumption that he was dead before he left the ship's deck. Murdered. The girl shuddered. It was a full hour later that the first officer returned to report the outcome of the search. "'Mr. Caldwell is not on board, sir,' he said. "'I fear that there is something more serious than accident here, Mr. Brentley,' said the captain. "'I wish that you would make a personal and very careful examination of Mr. Caldwell's effects "'to ascertain if there is any clue to a motive either for suicide or murder. "'Check everything closely.' "'Aye, aye, sir,' responded Mr. Brentley, and left to commence his investigation. "'Hazel Strong was prostrated.' For two days she did not leave her cabin, and when she finally ventured on deck she was very wan and white, with great dark circles beneath her eyes. Waking or sleeping, it seemed that she constantly saw that dark body dropping, swift and silent, into the cold, grim sea. Shortly after her first appearance on deck following the tragedy, Monsieur Thuran joined her with many expressions of kindly solicitude. "'Oh, but it is terrible, Miss Strong,' he said. I cannot rid my mind of it. Nor I, said the girl wearily. I feel that he might have been saved had I but given the alarm. You must not reproach yourself, my dear Miss Strong, urged Monsieur Thuran. It was in no way your fault. Another would have done as you did. Who would think that because someone fell into the sea from a ship that it must necessarily have been a man? Nor would the outcome have been different had you been given an alarm. For a while they would have doubted your story, thinking it but the nervous hallucination of a woman. Had you insisted, it would have been too late to have rescued him by the time the ship would have been brought to a stop, and the boats lowered and rowed back miles in search of the unknown spot where the tragedy had occurred. 
"'No, you must not censure yourself. "'You have done more than any other of us for poor Mr. Caldwell. "'You were the only one to miss him. "'It was you who instituted the search.' The girl could not help but feel grateful to him for his kind and encouraging words. He was with her often, almost constantly for the remainder of the voyage, and she grew to like him very much indeed. Monsieur Thuran had learned that the beautiful Miss Strong, of Baltimore, was an American heiress, a very wealthy girl in her own right, and with future prospects that quite took his breath away when he contemplated them, and since he spent most of his time in that delectable pastime, it is a wonder that he breathed at all. It had been Monsieur Thuran's intention to leave the ship at the first port they touched after the disappearance of Tarzan. Did he not have in his coat pocket the thing he had taken passage upon this very boat to obtain? There was nothing more to detain him here. He could not return to the continent fast enough that he might board the first express for St. Petersburg. But now another idea had obtruded itself and was rapidly crowding his original intentions into the background. That American fortune was not to be sneezed at, nor was its possessor a whit less attractive. But she would cause a sensation in St. Petersburg, and he would too, with the assistance of her inheritance. After Monsieur Thuran had squandered a few million dollars, he discovered that the vocation was so entirely to his liking that he would continue on down to Cape Town, where he suddenly decided that he had pressing engagements that might detain him there for some time. Miss Strong had told him that she and her mother were to visit the latter's brother there, they had not decided upon the duration of their stay, and it would probably run into months. She was delighted when she found that Monsieur Thuran was to be there also. "'I hope that we shall be able to continue our acquaintance,' she said. "'You must call upon Mamma and me as soon as we are settled.' Monsieur Thuran was delighted at the prospect, and lost no time in saying so. Mrs. Strong was not quite so favorably impressed by him as her daughter. "'I do not know why I should distrust him.' she said to Hazel one day, as they were discussing him. He seems a perfect gentleman in every respect, but sometimes there is something about his eyes, a fleeting expression which I cannot describe, but which when I see it gives me a very uncanny feeling. The girl laughed. You are a silly dear, Mama," she said. I suppose so, but I am sorry that we have not poor Mr. Caldwell for company instead. And I too, replied her daughter. Monsieur Thuran became a frequent visitor at the home of Hazel Strong's uncle in Cape Town. His attentions were very marked, but they were so punctiliously arranged to meet the girl's every wish that she came to depend upon him more and more. Did she or her mother or a cousin require an escort? Was there a little friendly service to be rendered? The genial and ubiquitous Monsieur Thuran was always available. Her uncle and his family grew to like him for his unfailing courtesy and willingness to be of service. Monsieur Thuran was becoming indispensable. At length, feeling the moment propitious, he proposed. Miss Strong was startled. She did not know what to say. I have never thought that you cared for me in any such way, she told him. I have looked upon you always as a very dear friend. I shall not give you my answer now. Forget that you have asked me to be your wife. Let us go on as we have been. Then I can consider you from an entirely different angle for a time. It may be that I shall discover that my feeling for you is more than friendship. I certainly have not thought for a moment that I loved you. This arrangement was perfectly satisfactory to Monsieur Thuran. He deeply regretted that he had been hasty, but he had loved her for so long a time, and so devotedly, 
and he thought that everyone must know it. "'From the first time I saw you, Hazel,' he said, "'I have loved you. I am willing to wait, for I am certain that so great and pure a love as mine will be rewarded. All that I care to know is that you do not love another. Will you tell me?' "'I have never been in love in my life,' she replied, and he was quite satisfied. On the way home that night, in his mind, he purchased a steam yacht and built a million-dollar villa on the Black Sea. The next day Hazel Strong enjoyed one of the happiest surprises of her life. She ran face to face upon Jane Porter as she was coming out of a jeweler's shop. "'Why, Jane Porter!' she exclaimed. "'Where in the world did you drop from? I can't believe my own eyes!' "'Well, of all things,' cried the equally astonished Jane." and here I've been wasting whole reams of perfectly good imagination, picturing you in Baltimore. The very idea! And she threw her arms about her friend once more, and kissed her a dozen times. By the time mutual explanations had been made, Hazel knew that Lord Tennington's yacht had been put in at Cape Town for at least a week's stay, and at the end of that time was to continue on her voyage, this time up the west coast, and so back to England, where, concluded Jane, I am to be married. "'Then you are not married yet?' asked Hazel. "'Not yet,' replied Jane, and then, quite irrelevantly, "'I wish England were a million miles from here.' Visits were exchanged between the yacht and Hazel's relatives. Dinners were arranged, and trips into the surrounding country to entertain the visitors. Monsieur Thuran was a welcome guest at every function. He gave a dinner himself to the men of the party, and managed to ingratiate himself in the goodwill of Lord Tennington by many little acts of hospitality. Monsieur Thuran had heard dropped a hint of something which might result from this unexpected visit of Lord Tennington's yacht, and he wanted to be counted in on it. Once when he was alone with the Englishman he took occasion to make it quite plain that his engagement to Miss Strong was to be announced immediately upon their return to America. "'But not a word of it, my dear Tennington. Not a word.' "'Certainly, I quite understand, my dear fellow,' Tennington had replied. "'But you are to be congratulated. Ripping girl, don't you know? Really.' The next day it came. Mrs. Strong, Hazel, and Monsieur Thuran were Lord Tennington's guests aboard his yacht. Mrs. Strong had been telling them how much she had enjoyed her visit at Cape Town, and that she regretted that a letter just received from her attorneys in Baltimore had necessitated her cutting her visit shorter than they had intended. "'When do you sail?' asked Kennington. "'The first of the week, I think,' she replied. "'Indeed,' exclaimed Monsieur Thuran. "'I am very fortunate. I, too, have found that I must return at once, and now I shall have the honor of accompanying and serving you.' "'That is very nice of you, Monsieur Thuran,' replied Mrs. Strong. "'I am sure that we shall be glad to place ourselves under your protection.' But in the bottom of her heart was the wish that they might escape him. Why, she could not have told." "'By Jove!' ejaculated Lord Tennington a moment later. "'Bully idea! By Jove!' "'Yes, Tennington, of course,' ventured Clayton. "'It must be a bully idea if you had it. But what the deuce is it? Going to steam to China via the South Pole?' "'Oh, I say now, Clayton,' returned Tennington. "'You needn't be so rough on a fellow just because you didn't happen to suggest this trip yourself. You acted like a regular bounder ever since we've sailed.' "'No, sir,' he continued. "'It's a bully idea, and you'll all say so. "'It's to take Mrs. Strong and Miss Strong, and Thurin, too, if you'll come, "'as far as England with us, on the yacht. "'Now isn't that a corker?' 
"'Forgive me, Tenny, old boy,' cried Clayton. "'It certainly is a corking idea. "'I never should have suspected you of it. "'You're quite sure it's original, are you? "'And we'll sail the first of the week, "'or any other time that suits your convenience, Miss Strong,' "'concluded the big-hearted Englishman, "'as though the thing were all arranged except for the sailing date. "'Mercy, Lord Dennington, "'you haven't even given us an opportunity to thank you, "'much less decide whether we shall be able to accept your generous invitation.' "'said Mrs. Strong. "'Why, of course you'll come,' responded Tennington. "'We'll make as good a time as any passenger boat, "'and you'll be fully as comfortable. "'And anyway, we all want you, "'and we won't take no for an answer.' "'And so it was settled that they should sail the following Monday. Two days out the girls were sitting in Hazel's cabin, "'looking at some prints that she had had finished in Cape Town.' They represented all the pictures she had taken since she left America, and the girls were both engrossed in them, Jane asking many questions, and Hazel keeping up a perfect torrent of comment and explanation of the various scenes and people. "'And here,' she said suddenly, "'here's a man you know. Poor fellow. I have so often intended asking you about him, but I never have been able to think of it when we were together.' She was holding the little print so that Jane did not see the face of the man it portrayed. "'His name was John Caldwell,' continued Hazel. "'Do you recall him? "'He said that he met you in America. "'He is an Englishman.' "'I do not recollect the name,' replied Jane. "'Let me see the picture.' "'The poor fellow was lost overboard on our trip down the coast,' she said, "'as she handed the print to Jane. "'Lost? Lost? Hazel! Hazel! "'Don't tell me that he is dead! Drowned at sea! "'Hazel!' "'Why don't you say that you are joking?' And before the astonished Miss Strong could catch her, Jane Porter had slipped to the floor in a swoon. After Hazel had restored her chum to consciousness, she sat looking at her for a long time before either spoke. "'I didn't know, Jane,' said Hazel, in a constrained voice, "'that you knew Mr. Caldwell so intimately that his death could prove such a shock to you.' "'John Caldwell?' questioned Miss Porter. "'You do not mean to tell me that you do not know who this man was, Hazel?' "'Why, yes, Jane, I know perfectly well who he was. "'His name was John Caldwell. He was from London.' "'Oh, Hazel, I wish I could believe it,' moaned the girl. "'I wish I could believe it, but those features are burned so deep into my memory and my heart "'that I should recognize them anywhere in the world from among a thousand others "'who might appear identical to anyone but me.' "'What do you mean, Jane?' cried Hazel. "'now thoroughly alarmed. "'Who do you think it is?' "'I don't think, Hazel. "'I know that that is a picture of Tarzan of the Apes.' "'Jane! "'I cannot be mistaken. "'Oh, Hazel! "'Are you sure that he is dead? "'Can there be no mistake?' "'I... "'I'm afraid not, dear,' "'answered Hazel, sadly. "'I wish I could think that you are mistaken, "'but now a hundred and one little pieces "'of corroborative evidence occur to me that meant nothing to me while, while I thought that he was John Caldwell of London. He said that he had been born in Africa and educated in France. Yes, that would be true, murmured Jane Porter, dully. The first officer who searched his luggage found nothing to identify John Caldwell of London. Practically all his belongings had been made or purchased in Paris. Everything that bore in initial was marked either with a T alone or with J C. T. We thought that he was traveling incognito under his first two names, the J.C. standing for John Caldwell. 
Tarzan of the Apes took the name John C. Tarzan, said Jane, in the same lifeless monotone. And he is dead? Oh, Hazel, it's horrible. He died all alone in this terrible ocean? It is unbelievable that that brave heart should have ceased to beat, that those mighty muscles are quiet and cold forever, that he who was the personification of life and health and manly strength should be the prey of slimy, crawling things that... But she could go no further, and with a little moan she buried her head in her arms and sank sobbing to the floor. For days Miss Porter was ill and would see no one except Hazel and the faithful Esmeralda. When at last she came on deck, all were struck by the sad change that had taken place in her. She was no longer the alert, vivacious American beauty who had charmed and delighted all who came in contact with her. Instead, she was a very quiet and sad little girl, with an expression of hopeless wistfulness that none but Hazel Strong could interpret. The entire party strove their utmost to cheer and amuse her, but all to no avail. Occasionally the jolly Lord Tennington would wring a wan smile from her, but for the most part she sat with wide eyes looking out across the sea. With Jane Porter's illness one misfortune after another seemed to attack the yacht. First an engine broke down, and they drifted for two days while temporary repairs were being made. Then a squall struck them unaware, that carried overboard nearly everything above deck that was portable. Later two of the seamen fell to fighting in the foxhole, with the result that one of them was badly wounded with a knife, and the other had to be put in irons. Then, to cap the climax, the mate fell overboard at night, and was drowned before help could reach him. The yacht cruised about the spot for ten hours, but no sight of the man was seen after he disappeared from the deck into the sea. Every member of the crew and guests was gloomy and depressed after these series of misfortunes. All were apprehensive of worse to come, and this was especially true of the seamen who recalled all sorts of terrible omens and warnings that had occurred during the early part of the voyage, and which they could now clearly translate into the precursors of some grim and terrible tragedy to come. Nor did the croakers have long to wait. The second night after the drowning of the mate, the little yacht was suddenly racked from stem to stern. About one o'clock in the morning there was a terrific impact that threw the slumbering guests and crew from berth and bunk. A mighty shudder ran through the frail craft. She lay far over to starboard. The engine stopped. For a moment she hung there with her decks at an angle of forty-five degrees, and then, with a sullen, rending sound, she slipped back into the sea and righted. Instantly the men rushed upon deck, followed closely by the women. Though the night was cloudy, there was little wind or sea, nor was it so dark but that just off the port bow a black mass could be discerned floating low in the water. A derelict hit us, was the terse explanation of the officer of the watch. Presently the engineer hurried on deck in search of the captain. That patch we put on the cylinder head's blown out, sir, and she's making water fast forward in the port bow. An instant later a seaman rushed up from below. "'By God!' he cried. "'Her whole bleeding bottom's ripped out. "'She can't float twenty minutes.' "'Shut up!' roared Dennington. "'Ladies, go below and get some of your things together. "'It may not be so bad as that, "'but we may have to take to the boats. "'It will be safer to be prepared. "'Go at once, please. "'And Captain Gerald, send some competent man below, please, "'to ascertain the exact extent of the damage.' In the meantime, I might suggest that you have the boats provisioned. The calm, low voice of the owner did much to reassure the entire party, 
and a moment later all were occupied with the duties he had suggested. By the time the ladies had returned to the deck, the rapid provisioning of the boats had been about completed, and a moment later the officer who had gone below had returned to report. But his opinion was scarcely needed to assure the huddled group of men and women that the end of the Lady Alice was at hand. "'Well, sir,' said the captain, as his officer hesitated. "'I just like to frighten the ladies, sir,' he said, "'but she can't float a dozen minutes, in my opinion. "'There's a hole in her you could drive a belly cow through, sir.' For five minutes the Lady Alice had been settling rapidly by the bow. Already her stern loomed high in the air, and foothold on the deck was of the most precarious nature. She carried four boats, and these were all filled and lowered away in safety. As they pulled rapidly from the stricken little vessel, Jane Porter turned to have one last look at her. Just then there came a loud crash and an ominous rumbling and pounding from the heart of the ship. Her machinery had broken loose, and was dashing its way toward the bow, tearing out partitions and bulkheads as it went. The stern rose rapidly high above them. For a moment she seemed to pause there, a vertical shaft protruding from the bosom of the ocean, and then swiftly she dove head foremost beneath the waves. In one of the boats the brave Lord Tennington wiped a tear from his eye. He had not seen a fortune in money go down forever into the sea, but a dear, beautiful friend whom he had loved. At last the long night broke, and a tropical sun smote down upon the rolling water. Jane Porter had dropped into a fitful slumber. The fierce light of the sun upon her upturned face awoke her. She looked about her. In the boat with her were three sailors, Clayton and Monsieur Thuran. Then she looked for the other boats, but as far as the eye could reach there was nothing to break the fearful monotony of that waste of waters. They were alone in a small boat upon the broad Atlantic. We'll return to Chapter 14 right after these sponsor messages. And now, Chapter 14. Back to the Primitive. As Tarzan struck the water, his first impulse was to swim clear of the ship and possible danger from her propellers. He knew whom to thank for his present predicament, and as he lay in the sea, just supporting himself by a gentle movement of his hands, his chief emotion was one of chagrin that had been so easily bested by Rokoff. He lay thus for some time, watching the receding and rapidly diminishing lights of the steamer without it ever once occurring to him to call for help. He had never called for help in his life, and so it is not strange that he did not think of it now. Always he had depended upon his own prowess and resourcefulness, nor had there ever been since the days of Kala any to answer an appeal for succor. When it did occur to him, it was too late. There was, thought Tarzan, a possible one chance in a hundred thousand that he might be picked up, and an even smaller chance that he would reach land. So he determined that to combine what slight chances there were, he would swim slowly in the direction of the coast. The ship might have been closer in than he had known. His strokes were long and easy. It would be many hours before those giant muscles would commence to feel fatigue. As he swam, guided toward the east by the stars, he noticed that he felt the weight of his shoes, and so he removed them. His trousers went next, and he would have removed his coat at the same time but for the precious papers in his pocket. To assure himself that he still had them, he slipped his hand in to feel. But to his consternation, they were gone. Now he knew that something more than revenge had prompted Rokoff to pitch him overboard. The Russian had managed to obtain possession of the papers Tarzan had wrested from him at Bu Saida. The ape-man swore softly 
and let his coat and shirt sink into the Atlantic. Before many hours he had divested himself of his remaining garments and was swimming easily and unencumbered toward the east. The first faint evidence of dawn was paling the stars ahead of him when the dim outlines of a low-lying black mass loomed up directly in his track. A few strong strokes brought him to its side. It was the bottom of a wave-washed derelict. Tarzan clambered upon it. He would rest there until daylight at least. He had no intention to remain there inactive, a prey to hunger and thirst. If he must die, he preferred dying in action while making some semblance of an attempt to save himself. The sea was quiet, so that the wreck had only a gently undulating motion. That was nothing to the swimmer who had had no sleep for twenty hours. Tarzan of the apes curled up upon the slimy timbers and was soon asleep. The heat of the sun awoke him early in the forenoon. His first conscious sensation was of thirst, which grew almost to the proportions of suffering with full returning consciousness. But a moment later it was forgotten in the joy of two almost simultaneous discoveries. The first was a mass of wreckage floating beside the derelict in the middle of which, bottom up, rose and fell an overturned lifeboat. The other was the faint, dim line of a far distant shore showing on the horizon in the east. Tarzan dove into the water and swam around the wreck to the lifeboat. The cool ocean refreshed him almost as much as would a draft of water, so that it was with renewed vigor that he brought the smaller boat alongside the derelict, and after many Herculean efforts, succeeded in dragging it onto the slimy ship's bottom. There he righted and examined it. The boat was quite sound, and a moment later floated upright alongside the wreck. Then Tarzan selected several pieces of wreckage that might answer him as paddles, and presently was making good headway toward the far-off shore. It was late in the afternoon by the time he came close enough to distinguish objects on land, or to make out the contour of the shoreline. Before him lay what appeared to be the entrance to a little, landlocked harbor. The wooded point to the north was strangely familiar. Could it be possible that fate had thrown him up at the very threshold of his own beloved jungle? But as the bow of his boat entered the mouth of the harbor, the last shred of doubt was cleared away, for there before him upon the farther shore, under the shadows of his primeval forest, stood his own cabin, built before his birth by the hand of his long-dead father, John Clayton, Lord Greystoke. With long sweeps of his giant muscles, Tarzan sent the little craft speeding toward the beach. Its prow had scarcely touched when the ape-man leaped to the shore. His heart beat fast in joy and exultation as each long-familiar object came beneath his roving eyes—the cabin, the beach, the little brook, the dense jungle, the black impenetrable forest, the myriad birds in their brilliant plumage, the gorgeous tropical blooms upon the festooned creepers falling in great loops from the giant trees. Tarzan of the apes had come into his own again, and that all the world might know it, he threw back his young head and gave voice to the fierce, wild challenge of his tribe. For a moment silence reigned upon the jungle, and then, low and weird, came an answering challenge. It was the deep roar of Numa, the lion, and from a great distance, faintly, the fearsome, answering bellow of a bull ape. Tarzan went to the brook first and slaked his thirst. Then he approached his cabin. The door was still closed and latched as he and Darnot had left it. He raised the latch and entered. Nothing had been disturbed. There were the table, the bed, and the little crib built by his father. 
the shelves and cupboards just as they had stood for over twenty-three years, just as he had left them nearly two years before. His eyes satisfied, Tarzan's stomach began to call aloud for attention. The pangs of hunger suggested a search for food. There was nothing in the cabin, nor had he any weapons, but upon a wall hung one of his old grass ropes. It had been many times broken and spliced, so that he had discarded it for a better one long before. Tarzan wished that he had a knife. Well, unless he was mistaken, he should have that, and a spear, and bows and arrows, before another sun had set. The rope would take care of that, and in the meantime it must be made to procure food for him. He coiled it carefully, and throwing it about his shoulder, went out, closing the door behind him. Close to the cabin the jungle commenced, and into it Tarzan of the apes plunged, wary and noiseless, once more a savage beast hunting his food. For a time he kept to the ground, but finally, discovering no spoor indicative of nearby meat, he took to the trees. With that first dizzy swing from tree to tree, all the old joy of living swept over him. Vain regrets and dull heartache were forgotten. Now he was living. Now indeed was the true happiness of perfect freedom his. Who would go back to the stifling, wicked cities of civilized man when the mighty reaches of the great jungle offered peace and liberty? Not he. While it was yet light, Tarzan came to a drinking place by the side of a jungle river. There was a ford there, and for countless ages the beasts of the forest had come down to drink at this spot. Here of a night might always be found either Sabor or Numa, crouching in the dense foliage of the surrounding jungle, awaiting an antelope or water-buck for their meal. Here came Horta, the boar, to water, and here came Tarzan of the apes to make a kill, for he was very empty. On a low branch he squatted above the trail. For an hour he waited. It was growing dark. A little to one side of the ford in the densest thicket he heard the faint sound of padded feet and the brushing of a huge body against tall grasses and tangled creepers. None other than Tarzan might have heard it, but the ape-man heard and translated. It was Numa, the lion, on the same errand as himself. Tarzan smiled. Presently he heard an animal approaching warily along the trail toward the drinking place. A moment more and it came into view. It was Horta, the boar. Here was delicious meat, and Tarzan's mouth watered. The grasses where Numa lay were very still now, ominously still. Horta passed beneath Tarzan. A few more steps and he would be within the radius of Nuna's spring. Tarzan could imagine how old Nuna's eyes were shining how he was already sucking in his breath for the awful roar which would freeze his prey for the brief instant between the moment of the spring and the sinking of terrible fangs into splintering bones. But as Numa gathered himself, a slender rope flew through the air from the low branches of a nearby tree. A noose settled about Horta's neck. There was a frightened grunt, a squeal, and then Numa saw his quarry dragged backward up the trail, and as he sprang, Horta, the boar, soared upward beyond his clutches into the tree above, and a mocking face looked down and laughed into his own. Then indeed did Numa roar. Angry, threatening, hungry, he paced back and forth beneath the taunting ape-man. Now he stopped, and rising on his hind legs against the stem of the tree that held his enemy, sharpened his huge claws upon the bark, tearing out great pieces that laid bare the white wood beneath. And in the meantime, 
Tarzan had dragged the struggling Horta to the limb beside him. Sinewy fingers completed the work the choking noose had commenced. The ape-man had no knife, but nature had equipped him with the means of tearing his food from the quivering flank of his prey, and gleaming teeth sank into the succulent flesh while the raging lion looked on from below as another enjoyed the dinner that he had thought already his. It was quite dark by the time Tarzan had gorged himself. Ah, but it had been delicious. Never had he quite accustomed himself to the ruined flesh that civilized men had served him, and in the bottom of his savage heart there had constantly been the craving for the warm meat of the fresh kill, and the rich, red blood. He wiped his bloody hands upon a bunch of leaves, slung the remains of his kill across his shoulder, and swung off to the middle terrace of the forest toward his cabin. And at the same instant Jane Porter and William Cecil Clayton arose from a sumptuous dinner upon the Lady Alice, thousands of miles to the east, in the Indian Ocean. Beneath Tarzan walked Numa, the lion, and when the ape-man deigned to glance downward, he caught occasional glimpses of the baleful green eyes following to the darkness. Numa did not roar now. Instead, he moved stealthily, like the shadow of a great cat, but yet he took no step that did not reach the sensitive ears of the ape-man. Tarzan wondered if he would stalk him to his cabin door. He hoped not, for that would mean a night's sleep curled in the crotch of a tree, and he much preferred the bed of grasses within his own abode. But he knew just the tree, and the most comfortable crotch, if necessity demanded that he sleep out. A hundred times in the past some great jungle cat had followed him home, and compelled him to seek shelter in this same tree, until another mood, or the rising sun, had sent his enemy away. But presently Numa gave up the chase, and, with a series of blood-curdling moans and roars, turned angrily back in search of another and easier dinner. So it was that Tarzan came to his cabin unattended, and a few moments later was curled up in the mildewed remnants of what had once been a bed of grasses. Thus easily did Monsieur Jean C. Tarzan slough the thick skin of his artificial civilization, and sink happy and contented into the deep sleep of the wild beast that is fed to repletion. Yet a woman's yes would have bound him to that other life forever, and made the thought of this savage existence repulsive. Tarzan slept late into the following forenoon, for he had been very tired from the labors and exertion of the long night and day upon the ocean, and the jungle jaunt that had brought into play muscles that he had scarcely used for nearly two years. When he awoke he ran to the brook first to drink. Then he took a plunge into the sea, swimming about for a quarter of an hour. Afterward he returned to his cabin and breakfasted off the flesh of Horta. This done, he buried the balance of the carcass in the soft earth outside the cabin for his evening meal. Once more he took his rope and vanished into the jungle. This time he hunted nobler quarry, man. Although had you asked him his own opinion he could have named a dozen other denizens of the jungle, which he considered far the superiors in nobility of the many hunted. Today Tarzan was in quest of weapons. He wondered if the women and children had remained in Imbanga's village after the punitive expedition from the French cruiser had massacred all the warriors in revenge for Darnot's supposed death. He hoped that he should find warriors there for he knew not how long a quest he should have to make were the village deserted. The ape-man traveled swiftly through the forest, and about noon came to the site of the village, but to his disappointment found that the jungle had overgrown the plantain fields and that the thatched huts had fallen in decay. There was no sign of man. He clambered about among the ruins for half an hour, hoping that he might discover some forgotten weapon, but his search was without fruit. 
so I took up his quest once more, following up the stream which flowed from a southeasterly direction. He knew that near fresh water he would be most likely to find another settlement. As he traveled, he hunted, and as he had hunted with his eight people in the past, as Kala had taught him to hunt, turning over rotted logs to find some toothsome vermin, running high into the trees to rob a bird's nest, or pouncing upon a tiny rodent with the quickness of a cat. There were other things that he ate, too, but the less detailed the account of an ape's diet, the better, and Tarzan was again the ape, the same fierce, brutal anthropoid that Kala had taught him to be, and that he had been for the first twenty years of his life. Occasionally he smiled as he recalled some friend who might even at the moment be sitting placid and immaculate within the precincts of his select Parisian club, just as Tarzan had sat but a few months before, and then he would stop, as though turned suddenly to stone as the gentle breeze carried to his trained nostrils the scent of some new prey or a formidable enemy. That night he slept far inland from his cabin, securely wedged into the crotch of a giant tree, swaying a hundred feet above the ground. He had eaten heartily again, this time from the flesh of Bara, the deer, who had fallen prey to his quick noose. Early the next morning he resumed his journey, always following the course of the stream. For three days he continued his quest, until he had come to a part of the jungle in which he never before had been. Occasionally upon the higher ground the forest was much thinner, and in the far distance through the trees he could see ranges of mighty mountains, with wide plains in the foreground. Here in the open spaces were new game, countless antelope and vast herds of zebra. Tarzan was entranced. He would make a long visit to this new world. On the morning of the fourth day his nostrils were suddenly surprised by a faint new scent. It was the scent of man, but yet a long way off. The ape-man thrilled with pleasure. Every sense was on the alert, as with crafty stealth he moved quickly through the trees, upwind, in the direction of his prey. Presently he came upon it, a lone warrior treading softly through the jungle. Tarzan followed close above his quarry, waiting for a clearer space in which to hurl his rope. As he stalked the unconscious man, new thoughts presented themselves to the ape-man, thoughts born of the refining influences of civilization, and of its cruelties. It came to him that seldom, if ever, did civilized man kill a fellow-being without some pretext, however slight. It was true that Tarzan wished this man's weapons and ornaments, but was it necessary to take his life to obtain them? The longer he thought about it, the more repugnant became the thought of taking human life needlessly, and thus it happened that while he was trying to decide just what to do, they had come to a little clearing, at the far side of which lay a palisaded village of beehive huts. As the warrior emerged from the forest, Tarzan caught a fleeing glimpse of a tawny hide worming its way through the matted jungle grasses in his wake. It was Numa the lion. He, too, was stalking the black man. With the instant that Tarzan realized the native's danger, his attitude toward his erstwhile prey altered completely. Now he was a fellow man, threatened by a common enemy. Numa was about to charge. There was little time in which to compare various methods or weigh the probable results of any, and then a number of things happened. Almost simultaneously, the lion sprang from his ambush toward the retreating black man. Tarzan cried out warning, and the black man turned just in time to see Numa halted in mid-flight by a slender strand of grass rope, the noosed end of which had fallen cleanly about his neck. The ape-man had acted so quickly that he had been unable to prepare himself to withstand the strain and shock of Numa's great weight upon the rope. 
and so it was that though the rope stopped the beast before his mighty talons could fasten themselves in the flesh of the black man, the strain overbalanced Tarzan, who came tumbling to the ground not six paces from the infuriated animal. Like lightning, Numa turned upon his new enemy, and, defenseless as he was, Tarzan of the apes was nearer to death that instant than ever before he had been. It was the black man who saved him. The warrior realized in an instant that he owed his life to this strange white man, and he also saw that only a miracle could save his preserver from those fierce yellow fangs that had been so near to his own flesh. With the quickness of thought his spear arm flew back, and then shot forward with all the force of the sinewy muscles that rolled beneath the shimmering ebony hide. True to its mark, the iron-shod weapon flew, transfixing Numa's sleek carcass from the right groin to beneath the left shoulder. With a hideous scream of rage and pain, the brute turned again upon the black man. A dozen paces he had gone when Tarzan's rope brought him to a stand once more. Then he wheeled again upon the ape-man, only to feel the painful prick of the barbed arrow as it sank half its length in his own quivering flesh. Again he stopped, and by this time Tarzan had run twice around the stem of a great tree with his rope, and made the end fast. The natives saw the trick, and grinned, but Tarzan knew that Numa must be quickly finished before those mighty teeth had found and parted the slender cord that held him. It was a matter of but an instant to reach the black side and drag his long knife from its scabbard. Then he signed the warrior to continue to shoot arrows into the great beast while he attempted to close in upon him with the knife. So as one tantalized upon one side, the other sneaked cautiously in upon the other. Numa was furious. He raised his voice in a perfect frenzy of shrieks, growls, and hideous moans, the while he reared upon his hind legs in futile attempt to reach first one and then the other of his tormentors. But at length the agile ape-man saw his chance and rushed in upon the beast's left side behind the mighty shoulder. A giant arm encircled the tawny throat, and a long blade sank once, true as a die, into the fierce heart. Then Tarzan arose, and the black man and the white looked into each other's eyes across the body of their kill, and the black made the sign of peace and friendship, and Tarzan of the apes answered in kind. Join us next week Sunday night for chapters 15 and 16 of The Return of Tarzan. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is 1001 Stories for the Road. If you're enjoying our story, please do stop a moment and send us a review, and please do share our show with your friends. We appreciate that, and that's how we get new listeners. Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.